Welcome to the July 2023 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASFA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, the EHFF. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Connor. In this month's podcast, David Sumick and Caroline interviewed Bill Sharp, an independent researcher in science, technology, and society. Bill was a research director at Hewlett-Packard Laboratories, where he led research into everyday applications of technology and introduced scenario methods to HP to support long-range research and innovation. He's the author of the book, Three Horizons, The Patterning of Hope. Well, this morning, Caroline White and I are delighted to meet with Bill Sharp, who is a futurist and someone we've known about for many years and even occasionally worked with. And Bill is someone whose name is associated with a a scenarios model called the Three Horizons. And Bill's worked both in the field of uh, health but also in agriculture and so on. But uh, I really, Bill, uh, delighted you could come today. Thank you so much. And uh, really, I just want to start by asking you a bit about yourself, you know, and how you, uh, how your careers developed for you to be where you are now. Is that okay? Certainly. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Would you like to tell us a bit about your career trajectory as a futurist? Yes, it's sort of happened as a byproduct of what I would, my main career path, which was in the computer industry. I'm always interested in science and research and, and doing new things and learning. And so the bulk of my main career was in one way or another on the research and innovation end of computing. Um, I worked early on in a government research lab, went into the director of a government program way back when in the 80s when AI was last a thing, um, and then joined the corporate labs of a big um, multinational computer company um, when they set up in the UK. Um, And it was there um, in Bristol in the UK working for Hewlett-Packard that I first started getting interested in futures because as a research director, I had to work with my team and the businesses to make decisions about what we were investing in, knowing that in computing, the whole landscape typically changes every 10 or 15 years. If you look back 50 years, you'll see major changes in the leaders of the industry. And each generation tends to bring in totally new, uh, new players. Uh, So we needed some way to do that. And I found there were no particular tools that as a manager I could use. And it was the time when a number of people who pioneered scenario planning in Shell had left Shell and set up something called Global Business Network. And they were actively working with industry and other organizations to spread that practice of scenario-based futures. And we started working with them. And we also built up a link with someone also known in the International Futures Forum, uh, very much Tony Hodgson, who is a deep expert in futures thinking and systems thinking. And he became a consultant for us and, and then through that a, a close friend and colleague who I still work with now. So that's when I started investing in in futures practices systematically for the very practical purpose of of exploring the the future, which was different from the past, the scope of innovation and change. I left that world directly around the turn of the millennium and we, with a colleague, set up a little innovation consultancy where we offered product innovation and futures 
to, to companies. And that's when I started becoming a facilitator of these processes instead of just a manager and got to know people in the International Futures Forum, Graham Lester and Tony, and started seeing the potential to bring those practices into much wider use for the, the problems that we're all now so familiar with. Um, basically, how do we ensure that 10 billion people can live well on one planet? So I got more and more interested in building my third age career into how to spread these practices as widely as possible. Um, and that's what's led me into the work with Three Horizons that we'll probably talk more about. So, so yes, now I see my my role as doing what I can to equip as many people as possible with practical ways to think about the future and change. Mm. Now, it's it's uh, interesting indeed that I feel I've also have a third age career, <laughs> not as illustrious as yours, but it's pointing in the same direction, I must say, and trying to use uh, your previous knowledge to kind of enrich, you know, the, the new direction. But uh, tell us more then about how, uh, how Three Horizons developed and uh, how it's been used uh, once you uh, started applying it. Yes, um, it came out of a piece of work for the UK government's foresight programme, which I did some work with at that point where I'd just left Hewlett Packard and had my own consulting little company. And as it happened, the Director General of Research Councils at that time was the ex leader of the labs in, in HP, HP Bristol. Um, so I got pulled in on one or two projects where they particularly wanted more help with the technology foresight dimension of, of some of these projects like cognitive systems and so on. And there was a project on looking at cities and intelligent infrastructure and mobility, all things that are very hot issues now with the transformations we're going through. And it's a very complex topic. And I was working with Tony on it. Um, and at one point he said, well, we're doing the scenarios, um, he and another colleague, um, and we're looking at it in terms of these horizons of change. And I picked up on that and I was being really challenged to, to give a 50-year look ahead on technology. And I said, well, you can't really do that. We don't have the evidence of what it'll be that far out. Um, but then as I thought about it, I thought, well, the evidence we do have, the commitments that people are making, the way people state, well, this is my direction, and whether they're right or wrong and should be believed or not, you have to interpret what they're doing in terms of their explicit statement of vision and direction. Um, and I realised that we could characterise the three horizons in terms of these three different orientations to the future the orientation of maintaining where we are and innovating within the existing system as it would be continuing to exploit new sources of oil or orientations towards the vision, which was fundamentally transformational and required a different axis of innovation. And then the, the second horizon entrepreneurial being somewhat ambiguous, but being fundamentally about stepping into that space of change in some, uh, some way that disrupts the existing system. So that, that was the one piece that was new in this idea of three horizons, instead of just regarding them as sort of short, medium and long term, regarding them as three fundamentally different qualities by which we meet the future in the present. And so it gives us a three dimensional view of time, if you like. So that, that was the moment when, it, when the current version of three horizons really came into existence. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, it is very interesting that because you, you started, I remember I talked to the, the breakaway uh, shell scenario guys uh, 
about mm. 12 years ago and when they were teaching the the shell model as it was now mm. the oxford scenarios model if you like and what they said about it is look these these are not predicting the future this is about expanding people's horizons their thinking it's a in, in the sense of consciousness expanding it's yes. it was all in in the context there of business planning mm. um, and they were rather intrigued of the idea that you would use it in a in a non-commercial way and sort of uh, they thought it was very ambitious and so on but uh, you've uh, you've really demonstrated i think you and your colleagues how you can then use that model um, and we'll go back to the philosophy of it but i think that's also kind of in parallel and very interesting but in terms of practical application I mean I think of the obvious one for me would be uh, the shine project in Fife where you actually were using that model as a basis for transformational change the way people delivered care for the elderly and so on perhaps you can yes. talk a bit about that yes and, and before going in on that example I think it's important to make the distinction from scenario practice the sort of fundamental basis of classic scenarios is to look at the things you don't control that are going to turn up as uncertainties. Yeah. So they don't, it doesn't in and of itself work with the agency that you have because you put your agency to one side and look at the, the factors emerging that will create a challenging context, something that's plausible and relevant but challenging to your status quo. So that's the uncertainty dimension of futures. Yeah. The other dimension is agency, the ability we have to act and the other place you can go is by increasing your agency, by bringing together many different players and coming together around a shared sense of purpose. And we think of roadmaps and road mapping as the approach to that, much used in the technology arena where many different players need to plot a path as it would be through generations of our mobile devices where we've gone, you know, we're on generation four and five now, which has been, you know, over the last 50 years and also used in, situations of conflict and where you need to all coalesce around a shared story of the future. So we think of those as roadmaps. And then between the two is how do we bring those two together, the, the sense of uncertainty and the need to learn and adapt, but the ability to have a deeper agency. And we're increasingly using the term pathways for that. So we don't call three horizons a scenario practice, it's a pathways practice. Um, and scenarios can be used and have been used effectively in that domain. Um, known as normative or transformative scenarios, but they tend to be a lot of work and have to be done ground up every single time. And the great virtue of Three Horizons is that people can relate to it really quickly and easily. And it brings in a much stronger element of agency because that's intrinsic to the process. What visions of the future are they and what is our vision and how does that relate to the other visions and can we work with them? So scenarios in their classic form leave you to do that work as a separate step, whereas Three Horizons sorts of builds it in. So the example of, of Shine, because Graham Lester and Margaret Hanna sort of the, have led in that arena through the International Futures Forum, I got involved in that discussion very early on. Um, and we, I record having a, a small workshop um, with them where we were trying to articulate as best we could what was the, the change of approach that they were trying to champion. And it came out, it was quite natural to represent that in three horizon terms uh, between the first horizon, which is dominated by our 
conventional healthcare system, which is oriented around acute care of, of specific individual conditions, um, and see the need to open up a different model, which was more based on health as a property of relationship and community and, and thriving. And not that you you know if you break your leg, you still want to go to hospital, but the current healthcare system had no model of this, um, what they now call humanizing healthcare, looking at not, not what's the matter with you, but what matters to you and how do you support that sense of health and thriving. And Three Horizons can represent that very naturally in terms of the values and structures of the first horizon that are maybe not allowing the new values to be fully expressed. And then those new values coming into the foreground in the third horizon and configuring and uh, governing the use of the, the first horizon values. So see that well-being economy and society is coming into the foreground, making use of the acute system when it needs it. So that was that was provided very helpful, simple framing and has gone on to be useful in terms of holding a framework for the story that the Shine project has been on since. But the, uh, the key thing there, though, isn't it, is the um, horizon too, is this phase, the the, the journey from from one to three isn't it? it's the transformational yes. bit isn't it yes and how you make that happen i often teach three horizons and my favorite way of looking at the second horizon um comes from you know the simple biological model of transformation where the the, the caterpillar goes to the butterfly and um and when you think about it the caterpillar has to let go of what it is and become this sort of goo in the pupa. And I was fascinated to find that the biologists talk of imaginal discs and imaginal cells in this process and how once the resources are released, these cells that were always there create the new relationships amongst themselves from which the new structure is built, absorbing the resources of the old. So the way I like to think of it is that we, we all would have the capacity to be imaginal cells of the future. And it's through our imagination that we bring reality into being through the new relationships that we form. And of course, Shine itself is about health being a, it being a property of relationships. So I find that a very natural and compelling model of transformational change, which for me is all about reconfiguring relationships from which we gain our identity and our viability. So that for me is the essence of the second horizon, forming those new networks of hope between our imaginations. You use the word networks of hope. And again, the, your, your little books, is, it's uh, Stratman, it's Three Arises, The Patterning of Hope. Yes. Uh, and that's, I suppose it's, I was going to ask you about that because that word hope is partly uh, both about aspiration, but also it's, about, it's dealing with the uncertainty aspect of dealing with futures, isn't it? Um, it's dealing with what is our experience or in the present moment mm -hmm. related to complexity and change and uncertainty. And there are two ways we can go. One is to try and get ever more control over it by building up more and more knowledge, um, trying to capture the world somehow such that we can be in control um, and the other 
experience of complexity. I think of as more when you walk out in the woodlands and you're deeply immersed in complexity, but in a way that is very life-giving because you're very deeply attuned to those processes of life. So I think of hope as I call it the regenerative virtue because it is always available to us. My sense was that there is no situation so desperate, humans have showed that, that there is not some moment of action that can in some way renew the quality of humanity, however desperate. It may be a very small act, but there's always something that one can do. And then that moment we have an experience of life, even if we're in the presence of, of death. Whereas the opposite is when surrounded by life, we see no sense of possibility and then we have an experience of death, even though we're actually alive. So for me, the, the idea of the patterning of hope is that we, when we access that inherent virtue, that inherent quality of hope, we will find some way that we can take a step in the present moment towards the renewal of life. Um, and whenever I see people acting with courage and hope in the most desperate circumstances. I see they're they are always renewing, serving something in their, their belief of what, what it means to be human. See, I think that's why uh, I think you've, you've summarized <laughs> beautifully in a few words the, uh, what I thought was very profound about your book, because on the one hand, you can see it as something very technical, you know, about helping people change. Mm. On the other hand, there's something spiritual really or sort of something that we and in fact I think we can all share you know those those who want to be change makers you know, that sense of uh, that this is all about being human really and allowing humanity to uh, to take us over really Caroline I think uh, would you like to join the conversation at this point Sure, with pleasure. Yes, uh, I'm finding it very interesting. A few sort of random thoughts that came into my head while you were speaking there, uh, Bill, was one was um, I was lucky enough to attend the Beyond Growth Conference that happened uh, in the European Union uh, Parliament, in the European Parliament in mid-May. And um, it was very interesting. It was a cross-party initiative and uh, very loads and loads of, of young people there. So it was very energizing in a lot of ways, but it was jammed and I couldn't attend all of the panels. There were too many good choices and it was very a big dilemma. What should I listen to? So I went back and listened to the videos after the ones I'd missed, some of them. And I recently listened to the one on the care economy. And when I was listening to what you were saying, I realized, I mean, I had been troubled by some aspects of the discussion on the care economy at the conference. And listening to what you were saying really helped me to, helps me to figure out what was troubling me. Um, in the conference, despite the title of the conference and you know the good mean the goodwill of many of the of the people there, I felt like the the angle that was taken on the care economy was very much what you might call the first horizon. It was very it was very much how do we make the care economy fit into our into our current paradigm. In other words, you know, we need to, I mean, very valid points like, you know, care workers need to be better paid, of course, you know, obviously, but they weren't really looking at What's the what's it all for? You know, what's the point? What's the care for? Who's deciding about who needs care and the people who are receiving the care? What's their wishes in all of this? It's like that wasn't being talked about at all. You know, so what you were saying just then it also reminded me of an, an earlier podcast David and I did a few years ago. I don't know if you remember David. Uh, it was one it was quite early on in our 
in our um, time with podcasts. I think it was Mike Buick, maybe, or uh, anyway, I might have got that wrong. Apologies if so. But anyway, though, this came up at an earlier point, and it's really great to be reminded of this again, because I mean, a lot of what we're doing in our work is we're trying to think about how to achieve a, a paradigm change, not only uh, so not only focusing on how to improve things by the measures that are conventionally used, but also looking beyond that and thinking about what, what's the vision here? What's the overall goal? What's the economy for overall? And of course, the health system really very much, there's very strong parallels between what's needed in healthcare and what's needed for the environment as well. So it's just been very, it's been very interesting. Maybe if you wouldn't mind, you've referred, both of you have referred to your book. If you wouldn't mind just explaining its name and, you know, and we can, so people can check it out if they'd like to listeners. So when we decided to, it was worth spreading through the horizons more widely and we might want to just talk about why that, that's the case. Um, I thought you, it's important to have some sort of book that people can just refer to. So I set about writing a book um, and writing it in such a way that, as David said, it wouldn't be a technical one about the methods because those could be somewhere else. I wanted to write something that was accessible to people who didn't come out of the futures field um, and would perhaps draw them into this quality of awareness that we need to cultivate to meet the future, because it's really about that. Um, and the International Futures Forum has a wonderful set of little cards that sort of help prompt you in different situations. And one was develop a future consciousness to inform the present. And that's been my sort of guiding card. And so I think about the book as how do we cultivate a future consciousness, which I think of as an awareness of the future potential of the present moment. And I did think about calling the book Future Consciousness, but I thought that sounds a bit abstract, it might not attract many people. And the whole point here is we have got this really simple way of leading ourselves into better ways of meeting the future called Three Horizons. So I'll put that on the front. There'll be no doubt about it. It's a book about Three Horizons. I'll go on talking about that now for the next decade or two and see what happens. Um, but underneath, uh, the patterning of hope was trying to speak to, well, what's it for? And what it's for is being able to meet our situation with hope, with a sense of purpose and renewal. Um, and I was particularly interested in how, how are people doing that and could this be of help to them? So that's how I ended up with the title. Yes, you have to be careful as well. If you Google uh, Three Horizons, of course, you get this. Is it McKinsey's model? Yes. <laughs> I have to admit, when I, when I first encountered the work with um, Tony and colleague Andrew Curry on that project, I didn't know about the McKinsey work, and maybe that's an advantage. Of course, I did then uh, find <laughs> out about it, but that's fine. Um, nobody's got a sort of ownership of the words Three Horizons. It does just mean that in contexts, particularly in business, where people are more familiar with that model, a bit of explanation is needed, and we've written that up in a, in a published paper. The simple way I put it is that in their model, it is very much a one-dimensional, short, medium, and long-term model of three S-curves. Um, and the fundamental shift to our model of three horizons is that all three horizons are always present. Um, and they have this nature that they are three qualities of awareness. And the reason three horizons lands everywhere is that I've now been doing this in enough different cultures and situations that I know these are universal qualities of awareness that people naturally have and can therefore identify in a moment. Nobody, nobody looks at you in a puzzled way when you talk about these. They, they get it really quickly and it becomes a shared language. 
Um, so in that sense, we are, it, it is helpfully, I think, bringing into our aware minds a quality that is always there, but we haven't really noticed. Can you tell us a little bit about your Yorkshire project currently? Yes. Um, so a colleague in the, this field of work on futures methods and change is Professor Joan Faisi, and he's very much embedded in the work on researching transformations and how the role of academia and research in bringing about transformational change. Um, he's one of the trustees of our little educational charity, H3Uni. And he moved to York University um, with a particular role to help build up a more strategic orientation to processes of transformation and worked with his colleagues there when uh, the UKRI created a new program for transforming food systems and Johan and a colleague there, Bob Doherty, wanted to put together a program, a bid for that for that program. So I helped them in the bid process. We ran a big Three Horizon workshop over a, a couple of days that helped formulate that and in particular helped with the sense of what's the third horizon vision that we're working towards and then talking about the second horizon, where are the points of intervention uh, that this program could work on in terms of early years food and hybrid business models and, and, and so on, um, and, and put some structure in there. And also the method got built into the program as offering this underlying framework of transformational processes that we could use throughout the project. So I, I work with them every now and then when they're coming to a point where they need to perhaps develop more alignment amongst the many different partners or step back and think about where to focus their efforts and, and how to ensure those are really focused on regenerative change. And there's quite a, a big website now with lots of good information on there on, on the structure of the project. And they recently published a nice little pamphlet on how they use Three Horizons um, to structure the the relationship with the many different stakeholders who they want to engage in the project. So it's turning into an, a, a good case study in the use of Three Horizons in this sort of way. What's the vision for that? Though? I'm just interested to know where, where it's going in terms of their, their vision for food and so on. Well, uh, their, their vision is a, is a regenerative food system. And so that has to encompass many different dimensions of how our food system currently operates. So maybe I should just take a little detour. One of the things we found we needed to do was actually pull together a clear understanding of what do we mean by regenerative cultures, regenerative food systems, or, or whatever. Um, and so one of the research team, um, Sam Buckton, has done a very nice job pulling together across the project a survey of what do we really mean by regenerative. And I've adopted a really simple model of this. We're all familiar with the notion that our current economy generates many externalities. It, it doesn't take account of many of the effects it has. So, so we have this problem that the, the market, the economy, is externalizing a lot of its effects and not, not paying its way. So a very, very simple approach to thinking regeneratively is to say, you can't be regenerative on your own. You're regenerative when you have positive externalities on all the other systems you're part of or that part of you. And that means it's not a one-off thing. It means it's got many different dimensions. So you could look at look at our food system and say, obviously, the externality at the moment, it's producing poor health in our children. It's producing obesity. That's an externality. So how do we bring healthy 
early years education and practice into the schools and make the schools part of how you work with the farms to create a community that supports um, a health-giving food system. You can then look at the relationship economically between the farmers and the food system and say, is the food system, the retail system, supporting these sort of more community and collaborative enterprises or is it draining resource out of them? You can look at the farming relationship to the itself to the to the natural world and obviously point to many problems of, of pollution and runoff and deterioration of the environment that it's causing. So there's basically an infinite number of dimensions that you can explore. And what the regenerative um, project, food system project, transforming the food system of Yorkshire is to see where might be the main leverage points for moving to something that is fundamentally restorative with respect to people and the natural environment and future generations. I'm delighted you gave us that explanation because again it has resonances for conversations we've had in our, I see Caroline's nodding vigorously. Do you want to comment on that Caroline? I'm delighted to hear that as well. I find that very very interesting. Um, in FASTA we've been doing some research as well about regenerative agriculture and uh, as you say looking at there's so many different dimensions, different ways and angles at which you can look at this and, and identify ways to help the agricultural system working much better in so many ways and, and i think it's really helpful to have that focus that's that goes beyond just focusing only on what's happening on the farm and although that's important and looking at other aspects as well um carry on david you wanted to say something too or did you? no no not at all it's uh i i didn't want to uh, no i'm just bringing you in because i think it you know for for those involved in faster i think what bill's saying seems to me again it it struck me about connections, you know, between people. It's one of those things, isn't it? We live in this strange world where we're we're ultra communicating, and yet at the same time, um, you have to search for things you know, that are going on uh, because so much is going on, I suppose. But um, I just wondered about uh, again uh, when you have a, a, an innovative project like that. Um, it's fantastic to think about. You can make connections between people doing other things and uh, enrich the whole process really. This is about complexity, isn't it? It's very messy. But, uh... It's the main process that we used. We had a workshop late last year and the project's been running for a year or two now. And going back to what is the nature of H2 Second Horizon Action? It's about building these new relationships. So we built the workshop all around revisiting what did we really understand by that regenerative system, answering your question more deeply, and then stepping back into the, the actual work program in the Second Horizon in terms of the relationships between different parts of the economy, the schools, the farmers, the policymakers, and getting the group people working in different groups, seeing how each focus of work that they were engaged in might benefit the others and how the others might benefit it, so that we were build, building up those stronger relationships, which they could invest in um, with this notion of the imaginal cells. What, what could they bring into being collectively through the relationships that they built across that whole Second Horizon landscape? I think it's very inspiring. Uh, Caroline, I'm just conscious, that, as ever, where victims of the clock. Um, yes. I'd love to talk longer with Bill, but I just feel... Yes, uh, we've had we've had a good half hour there, which is brilliant. So that's, that's loads of, of, of time. So we have tons of good information, I think, and material. Is there anything you'd like to add that you feel is important that you haven't said, or are you okay? I, I would just say, 
um, we found that Three Horizons is worth spreading. And I've encouraged people not just to think about it as just another tool that goes on the shelf with the other 20. Um, certainly it is that, and it's a very useful one. But it helps convene better conversations because it quickly gives people a shared language for change. And my ambition is in spreading it very widely is that the, the many, many different programs such as yours that are out there trying to make the world a better place can spend less time on, on finding a good language for all this and have a much more deeply shared culture of transformative change and future consciousness. From that, we will all be able to achieve a much greater collective impact and, and potentially rise to the challenge of overcoming the huge forces of the current first horizon, which is so deeply embedded. So my real interest is, is making this culture of future consciousness pervasive how do we get 100 million of the next generation equipped to face the challenges they will really face? That would just be one in 100 of humanity. And then think, are we not going to equip one in 100 of humanity with the means that, to think about the future and change? That's where we are at the moment. So I just really encourage people to find some way into joining this ambition of, of growing a new culture of future consciousness. That was Bill Sharp of International Futures Forum speaking about his work on the Three Horizons Futures Method. Many thanks to Bill for his participation and as always to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link on social media and keep an eye out for our next podcast which should go online at the end of July. Music